I am Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks Podcast. My name is Adam Reeder, but most people call me the Professor of Rock. I have to tell you, I feel extremely blessed because I've had the unique opportunity to converse with some of the greatest artists in the history of popular music. Truth is, I've always been obsessed with music. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I love it's these like a record. Yeah. You really are the professor. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Mitch Harlan, and welcome to the Truth Talks Podcast. Tonight's episode is with the professor of rock, Adam Reeder. How are you, Adam? Doing great. There's a whole reason why there's this thing called the professor of rock, and I'm going to let you explain it because I would not do it justice. Um, I, I, I talked to you a little previously off camera, and you made an impact in my life that I will never forget. Uh, you remember it? I do, absolutely. Sundance Film Festival, Kenny Loggins interview. I'm going to talk about sending the elevator back down for you. You know what that means? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So this one is, I got to just admit, man, this one is, is giddy for me because I, I don't know what happened that night or why it happened to me. But, man, my life changed that night. And I know some of it had to do with music, but... We were there for the premiere of the movie, and you guys were doing the entertainment, and, and you were sitting there, you know, interviewing Kenny Loggins. And, man, something magical happened. The, 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 the way you guys communicated with each other was magical. I hope we have some of that tonight. But I, I just, I, I'm just so excited for it. I mean, I know, I know producer Chad's going to have to edit half this out because I know I'm going to ramble, but I don't care, man. I want to know everything going on under that door, man. I want to know everything. That's awesome, yeah. So t tell me, tell me uh, um, let, let's let you introduce how you became the professor of rock. Sure. Well, so I, you know, I have always been into music since I was, I don't know, three or four years old, since I can remember. And I grew up in a small town in, in Idaho, Blackfoot, Idaho, where there wasn't a lot to do. I grew up in the wonderful decade of the 80s, and that influenced me a lot because uh, everything I did had to do with music. That's kind of how my dad and I bonded. We didn't really see eye to eye on much, but music was the one thing that we did. And uh, so he used to tell me some of the stories behind the songs, you know, just things that he grew up with, the 60s, 70s. And uh, I would listen to the Top 40 countdown with Casey Kasem, the American Top 40, and that was like that. And then later MTV and VH1 were like my window to the world. Because here I am in this small town where the is literally the potato capital of the world. That's what Blackfoot, Idaho is. And there's, you know, farmland as far as the eye can see. And there's not a lot to do. I mean, I think we, we got our first McDonald's when I was seven or eight years old. That was a big thing for us. And so, you know, I just always listened to the radio, always listened to pop radio and started buying, you know, records. My dad would bring records home. And, and that was just really my my window to the world and, and how I learned about uh, pop culture and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so years later, um, I was in a band in high school and all that kind of stuff. And then I kind of became an entrepreneur, did a lot of different things. And I had some time um, in my 30s to kind of do what I wanted to do. And I, I, I started a band and we, we did some cool things. We toured and, and we won this 
this award called the Hollywood Music Award that they gave away up in California. And, and uh, at that time, I started having kids, and I, I didn't really become a dad until I was 32. I was kind of a late bloomer there. And uh, I just didn't want to be away from my kids. I knew I'd have to go out on the road to do this and really give it my all. And I didn't want to be, you know, have them, you know, have this little baby, you know, at home and me be out on the road. So I, I started a business. It was like a, a music, um, it was first called Music for the Masses, named after a, De a Depeche Mode album. And it was like this, this business I had with a friend where he was like an engineer and the recording studio, and we would teach kids how to get into music. And, you know, they could come in and help them write songs and how they market themselves as an artist in kind of the new world that it was, because at that time the music industry is completely changing. This is about 2010. And uh, around that time, probably about a year later, we had this artist development company that was doing well. I got a call from uh, the general manager of ABC, the local ABC affiliate, which was ABC4. The guy had just moved in and took over as the general manager. He was at uh, Fox in San Diego, and he'd been a longtime veteran guy. Really good guy, and he, he, wa he wanted to bring me in as a potential sponsor with about seven or eight other companies because he wanted to start this music show about local music. So long story short, I go in there. I'm with, you know, probably, there's probably, I don't know, 30 people in the room. And he starts talking about this show. He had this show called Fox Rocks in San Diego. And I guess Maroon 5, it was like their first appearance before they were big. And he would have local bands come on and it was a music show. It did really well. It was on for, I don't know, half a decade or more. And he wanted to do the same thing here. And so uh, uh, I kind of sheepishly raised my hand and said, you know, I love local music and everything, but this show has been tried a few times in this, in this state. And this is in Utah. And I said, it hasn't done very well because honestly, people don't really care about local music until they become, you know, Imagine Dragons. And I said, what if you were to do a show? I love this idea. What if you do a show where the touring musicians who are coming through the town, you know, because Utah is not like L.A. where everybody's trying to get a piece of them. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of off, off the charts a little bit. And what if we got, you know, did an interview and had veteran artist is the big name and then you could do local music as kind of the backdrop and then you could have a big headliner like that and he's like I love that idea let's let's go you know you know in fact uh, after it's over he pulled me aside and said why don't you help me produce this show I don't just want you to be a sponsor I want you to help me produce it and I hadn't really ever done anything like that I said okay and he you know he said uh, let's find a host you know so we interviewed all these people to host it you know like DJs radio DJs and other types of personalities. We couldn't find anybody that really fit. And he said, why don't you host it? Like, <laughs> you know more about music than anybody I've ever seen. Like, and you've got this kind of cool thing, like you got this hat and these glasses and these bowling shirts and thing. It's kind of a cool look and you're just kind of a personality yourself. Why don't we do a little test interview? Down deep, did you want that? Um, I probably did. I don't know if I ever thought about it, but when he said that, I was like, man, I would love to do that. So. He set up the first interview it was with Kenny Loggins and we're coming up on seven years actually in a couple days, seven years ago, Kenny was my first interview. So I, I sit down with Kenny and about 15 minutes into the interview, he just says, who are you? And how have I never heard of you? Like, this is one of the best interviews I've, I've done. Like you really know your stuff. And 
And I didn't give it a second thought, honestly, because I thought, I, I bet you he tells everybody that, you know? I, I don't know. I've never been in this business. I'm just a fan. I love Kenny's music. I grew up on it. I bought his records the day they came out, along with a lot of other stars that I loved. And I always loved his, his especially, you know, um, uh, Leap of Faith was always my favorite album because it helped me through some really hard times. So this was just me being natural. This was just my love, my passion for the music. And we really hit it off and, and the interview was supposed to be like 15 minutes and it went like, I think almost an hour, you know, and, <laughs> you know, when the interview was over, we were like, okay, well, thank you, Kenny. And he said, well, hold on. I just want to say that this guy's going to be around for a long time. <laughs> like he's got what the classic guys had. And that was a different compliment than the compliment he'd done before. And it really blew me away. And I thought, wow, that is so I'm so grateful that he would take the time. And then after the interview's over, he took the time to talk to me. And and uh, he opened a lot of doors for me. And from there, you know, I had an interview pretty much a couple of weeks because we're doing this show. And this show, we, you know, I had this 45-minute show that I was over. And the interview was only one segment of it. There were seven or eight segments in the show. So I would have to come up with segments. And then there would be like a live band, like a, you know, a, a a local band that we would have on. And then I would have to come up with four to five segments a week of just my own stuff. So I started writing every week and I sat down with one editor and we would just put together this 45 minute show. And it was, I was a kid in a candy store because I could talk about whatever I wanted, you know? So right. I, I created all these like segments about, you know, jumping Jack flashback, you know, like we're going to go back in time to the year 1984 on our, on the jumping Jack flashback. And we're going to talk about the year that was, and I'd go through and I'd, and that's where I learned about like fair use and about, you know, and about honoring artists and right. just really took my own passion and wrote that out. And so I, I would write these segments every week and then we'd film them and I'd put little clips in and, and it was a lot of fun. And I learned about deadlines. I mean, I, I would, I was working 90 <laughs> hours a week. Oh yeah. It was crazy. You know, it's, that's about, yeah, there, there's just something special, man. I, I don't know what it is underneath that hat, but it's like really special. <laughs> and and I, remember, I remember you talking too about uh, like reading over 5,000 books on, on music. And I uh, mean, I'm the professor tonight. I'm, gonna, I'm the professor going to talk about the professor, right? Like uh, it, it was uh, your, your, uh, one of your teachers in school said, you're not going to amount to anything. And, uh, you know, you always had your nose in a book on music. I mean, man, when you, when you hit your, when you hit your zone and this is obviously your zone, man, it's just like a piece of art, just unbelievable. Did you, did you ever think you would be on the couch of all these people that you've interviewed? I mean, it's pretty much everyone. I didn't. I, I always say that this was the dream job that I never knew that I wanted because I didn't know really that it was possible. I mean, you know, I've seen almost famous and stuff like that where Cameron Crowe did that when he was a kid. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sure I had thoughts when I saw that movie saying, man, what, man, he's so lucky. I wish I could do that, you know? Um, but I don't think that I ever thought about it. I was always into music, like in a band, but I realized that I was in a band writing music, trying to write music to honor the artists that had influenced me. Yeah. So I was confused. I thought, well, I'm going to be in music because I want to keep the music alive by, you know, writing these great songs or, you know, you know, I had this song called Revive the Sound and in it, in the lyrics, I would say things like, you know, 
it's ridiculous that Rush and Journey aren't in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I would use that and, and that kind of thing. And I always thought that that would be the platform that I would use to be able to, to honor. And, and I realized later on that that's all I ever did. I just wanted to honor these artists. And it was almost like, um, you know, the man upstairs, and I know that everybody has their beliefs and everything, but I believe in a higher power, just opened the door and said, here it is. Because I'll tell you right now, there's no way that I should be doing what I'm doing because <laughs> how did this happen? I mean, how all of a sudden was uh, in this room with this guy who had moved in and just goes, I mean, how often does that happen where somebody who has no experience, no college degree in this, nothing, where he says, hey, help me produce a show. And then a couple of weeks later, hey, you should host the show. Oh, and by the way, you're going to interview Kenny Loggins, you know. So just a total blessing, and I really am humbled by that. And I take it very, very seriously. You know, it's very important. So I, every interview I do, I want it to be the best interview ever. And, it, you know, it's, it, it, I fall short a lot, but that's where I, I, I kind of look at the tape like a baseball player or a football player does, and I, and I realize, hey, I can do this better, this better. And, you know, I, I mean, it takes uh, a lot of research. I mean, I know a lot of this stuff, but I want to make sure it's right. And so I, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but that's, so I, I really feel um, that I'm in a position that I take it very seriously and it's an honor for me. And I want to honor these artists and let them know um, just what a major impact that they have made on so many lives, you know? Oh man. I mean, you know, that just resonates with me so much because I, you know, I'm, it, it is crazy how, how these impacts, I mean, are lifelong. Like I want to go back kind of to memory lane and you, you know, you were talking about when you were a kid, man, you would put on those headsets and then you would do the pipe and it was like you were saving up just enough money to go get that next, uh, you know, cassette and, and, uh, you know, everybody um, can name a moment in time when one of these iconic songs happens. And, like, I have zero music ability. I actually produced Chad and I were talking about that. We have zero music ability. <laughs> but music is so crazy important in the life of everyone. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to end an argument for me tonight with my wife on a, on a song. And, and uh, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping you go my direction here because I know you've done it. Give me your impression of why the, and I know you do 70s stuff, but why was the 80s and 90s so iconic? Well, um, you know, today this happened, and I try to be very, very cognizant and very careful. I don't ever want to be negative about any music. To me, music is subjective. Everybody right. is what they love. If somebody loves Justin Bieber, I might not agree with them, but I, I get it, and I, and I, and I shouldn't. I have to be careful, like with my kids, because I try to raise them right, but I also don't want to be that guy that, you know, be a Nazi and force things. So, right. Um, and, you know, so, but I, I look at it like this like today, I found out that Juice World broke a record that the Beatles and Drake of having five top 10 hits. And it frustrates me because I have a hard time with the charts now. I'm a chart guy, I have a million books that I've read and the chart positions and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that if you're not buying music, I have a hard time ranking it because back in the 80s and 90s and the 70s, people were plunking down their hard earned money to buy a record. Yes. And uh, I, I'm not biased against Juice World or Drake. Um, I open my mind up to new music. I try to, but you like what you like. And so I look back at the 80s and 90s and the really 
really the 50s to the 90s, the rock era. And I, I spent a lot of time with the 70s and 80s and, and 90s. But um, I really feel that uh, you can go back and if you open up a chart book, and I could do it, I could pull down a book. And if you look at the Hot 100 of any year, you uh, really any chart, any week, you know five or six of those songs of the top 10 songs that week. Everybody does. Like these yeah. songs you hear every day. They're in video games, they're in movies, they're in TV shows. And, um, and it doesn't matter if it's the 60s, 70s, the 80s, up to about the early 90s. These are just songs that last, and they've lasted forever, you know. And if you look at the, the, the songs from the last 10 years, and you look at, like, the top 20 songs for that year, they're just not songs that last. They're not songs that you listen to. Uh, a lot, you know, you just, you, you don't yeah. yourself listening to them. Um, they're big for the moment. I think it's fast food music and that's what we're focused on. There was a time when Ahmed Erdogan, Erdogan, Ahmed Erdogan, who was the Atlantic records. I mean, and, and, uh, you know, you had these, uh, these incredible record guys, you know, Walter Yentikoff from Sony and these guys cared about the music and they would give, an artist like Billy Joel or Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, they would give them uh, their time to um, develop as an artist. You know, they didn't say, hey, one hit, and if you don't get that hit, you're out. Yeah. You know, Billy Joel, you know, Piano Man seems like a big song now, but it wasn't a huge song. It went to the, you know, went top, top 30. Um, and it's bigger now because of radio play and things. But, you know, Billy Joel made less than $8,000 off of that song as an artist. And uh, it wasn't huge, but they saw the potential in Billy. And it took him, you know, three albums, three or four albums before The Stranger came out. I'm trying to remember um, how many albums it was, if you count Cold Spring Harbor and Street Life Serenade and Piano Man. Yeah, four, Turnstiles. So there's four albums that came out that really didn't sell very well. And they still allowed him to keep going. And then The Stranger hit, and it was all she wrote. And the same thing with Bruce Springsteen, you know, Born to Run. It took, took a couple of albums for him to produce what, what the record labels would call a hit. But they believed in these artists, and there was no plan B with these artists. And these right. artists did the music because it was the reason that blood flowed through their veins, the reason to exist. A lot of people now, and I'm not judging all musicians, a lot of people now, it's about fame. They want to be famous, YouTube. And, you know, and even my kids will say, yeah, I want to be on YouTube. And I'll say, why do you want to be on YouTube? Because I want to be famous. Yeah. Be famous. You know, Bruce Springsteen? No, that was not it. Bob Dylan? No. The, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I mean, you name any band or artist from that time, and, and it was about the music. It was always about the music. Man, I couldn't agree more because when I'm, you know, I of course I've watched a ton of your stuff even before we were going to do the podcast, and and uh, you know I know you got the Toto shirt on there now, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But just one of the things that was in one of the interviews you had done was they they were talking about how they strung up the tape around things and they would pull it to lengthen it to change the sound and stuff. But when these guys are literally talking to you. You can feel that it's all about the feel of that music. Like it, I don't think they care if it even get got on a chart. It was about the feel of that music. That's what blows me away when we're when when you're watching those interviews. Is that what it's like when you're sitting in front of these icons? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, 
it's just music. I, I, I don't care about who they slept with or how much, how many right. drugs they did, or I just don't, you know, to me, it's, it's always been sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'm only focused really. I'm only interested in the rock and roll part. I don't care about right. sex and drugs. Now, if the sex and drugs, you know, inspired, the influenced song, it, that's great. <laughs> uh, you know, but to me, I want to get the natural response of being in that room with them because they're doing things. I've had a, a few interviews just in the last few weeks where they talk about we did this. I remember Lamont Dozier who wrote all the Motown songs. He wrote the number one hits for the Supremes and the Four Tops. And that was like a three hour interview session I did with him. And I'm like, you know, this is a God, you know, this is one of the greatest songwriters, producers ever. And I was just like, you know, the whole time. But he, he told me about the way they would get these sounds on these Motown records. You know, they would, you know, he, he would use everything but the kitchen sink to get these sounds. I mean, they were in Hitsville, USA, which was basically a room that is about the size of the room I'm in right now. It was a house, you know, and it was had a couple of rooms in it. They'd use the bathroom to record in. And I mean, they just didn't they just experimented like crazy. And he, he, he once told me that Bob Dylan came in and said, hey, show me where all the magic happens, you know, like these amazing sounds that you get. And he's like, well, this is it. This is, this is where we record. He's like. Oh, come on. He, he didn't believe it. He was like, yeah, you don't want to share your secrets. I get it. But Lamont Dozier is like, look, this is it, you know? And it was really cool because they would do things. They would get a broken tambourine and they get a certain sound on that. And that's what you hear on like, oh, you know, reach out. I'll be there by the four tops. The problem with that is, and then you hear some of these guys in the eighties, like I was talking to, you know, uh, a few people the last few weeks who were telling me how they would get a certain sound and, and they would have to work to get this sound and experiment and record it and cut the tape and do all these different things. And now you, you push a button. Yeah. If you want to get that sound? There's a sample. You push a button. It's already pre-programmed. It's already in there. It's fine. You know, gated reverb, how Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel found that. It was by accident. These kinds of things were happening in the studio because there were people with other people who were feeling that energy together. And now people are... You know, like Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde told me this. This is a songwriting couple that wrote on Broadway. You've lost that love and feeling. We got to get out of this place. They've had so many hits. And, you know, they, they talked about how horrible it was now that people call the, the melody the top line. And they just email each other. And there's 12 different people that are emailing back and forth lyrics. And she just said, she said it the best. And I'll quote her. She said, it's just a soulless way of writing music and I agree with her yeah take that energy away that these guys had I mean Toto you know they, they told me about how Steve Lukather was saying that when the the drum machine came out you know and and they were saying man we got to go get rid of this we got to throw this away this can't have a drum machine <laughs> you know <laughs> uh Jeff Percaro was saying that was one of the greatest drummers ever and just the other day you know John Anderson of Yes was saying that he got really frustrated with some of the members of Yes in the late 80s when they were looking for three hours for a drum sample when he's like, we've got Phil, who's one of the greatest drummers of all time, sitting out here, just have him play it, you know? Like, this is ridiculous. And I No, I think that's dead on, man, because that's exactly how I feel. Like, uh, I mean, when, you know, I, I love um, XM Radio because, you know, when we're taking our 12-hour road trip back to my parents' house, it's 80s and 90s, man, and you can sing every word. 
but when you've done all the interviews that you have done with, I mean, every massive star out there, it's, I'm sure you have a, just a wicked appreciation for the musician themselves. You do. Um, and it's interesting because my crew uh, and the, the people that have really helped develop Professor Rock over the last, uh, you know, five or six years, and they're incredible. I have an incredible crew, incredible uh, production and post-production staff. And um, that, that, I think, pushes our, the excellence of what we're doing even further. And I'm not saying we're excellent. I'm just saying that you guys are excellent. Oh, thank you. But they care so much, you know, about this. They have a, a real passion. And what's really cool about it is they are, they're younger. You know, I think almost everybody that works is a millennial. Um, and uh, they have grown an appreciation for a lot of this music. And after a certain interviews over, a lot of them will say like, one time we interviewed somebody and, you know, they were kind of, one of them was kind of kicking their heels a little bit like, oh, I don't know about this interview. <laughs> and after it was over, like, wow, incredible. I, I have so much more respect. And it happened for me. You know, I, there are some times where you hear a song, we all do it, and you judge it. You judge it off the first, maybe you hear it a little too often or maybe you, you know, you judge it too harshly. But then you hear the story behind it and you see the person and the integrity behind it. And that happened to me with like, um, I did that with Five for Fighting. I'll just throw it out there. I, I didn't ever like Five for Fighting. I heard that Superman song, you know, um, and I heard his voice and I kind of judged him as a, oh, another Dave Matt. It kind of seemed like in the early 90s, like people went one of two ways. They were either trying to copy Eddie Vedder or Dave Matthews. Yeah. And I'm not saying he was trying to copy. I'm just saying... Like John Mayer, early John Mayer kind of, if you listen, kind of has a Dave Matthews sound to his yeah. voice of resonance. And then like, you know, Edwin McCain and, and a lot of this grunge stuff was like copying Eddie Vedder. And, and uh, even Stone Temple Pilots, their first record, there was a few of those that sound like Eddie Vedder, you know. So you can judge it. But then if you really listen, you can hear that. So with, with uh, John Androsic is the lead singer who is Five for Fighting. And I met him and I had an interview with him and he was just amazing. He was such a, so much integrity, such a great guy. He told me a story about, you know, when he played that song September 11th at the, at the concert for New York. And, and uh, he's a great storyteller and just a great guy, great father. He was there with his little boy and they're really into hockey. And I just saw the way that he uh, was as a, as a human being. And I thought, you know, there's something more there. And so I listened on the way home to those songs, and I had just had a different set of ears on. I, I really appreciated those songs for what they were. And the same thing kind of happened with, like, not with me, but with, like, Vanilla Ice for some people in my crew. Like, a lot of people will judge Vanilla Ice like, oh, he ripped off Queen or whatever. Ice Ice Baby is one of the great – it just is a great jam. It'll last forever, you know. <laughs> But when I interviewed Vanilla Ice, I was so blown away. He is so good to his fans. Like, I was just really blown away. He invited me to the show after to film on stage, and he was such a great host. He brought me back and, you know, just said, hey, whatever you want, you know, film it. It's cool, you know. Whatever, you know, I want to help you out. I believe in what you're doing. This is cool. And we go in there, and after the show's over, this is at the uh, – what is it called now? They've changed the name of it so much. It was the Delta Center, then Energy Solution. Oh, it's Vivint Arena. And after the shows, there was a big 90s show, and he was like the final act playing. He's kind of the reason people came, and I think uh, 
So anyway, it's over. And he sat there after the show was over, and he signed autographs and took pictures with every single fan that waited after the show. We're ta- I'm talking hundreds of people, and he, every single person. And he saw somebody way back in the background, this little girl who was trying to get through the crowd, and he said, hey, he told one of his security guards, go grab that little girl, bring her up here. I want to make sure that, you know, she doesn't get left out. And I was just like, and I don't think it was a show. I think that's really how he is. Yeah. You know, and I've heard his fans say as much. So I, I have a great respect for people that do that. I think Taylor Swift does that really well. I think she's so great to her fans. And that is a little bit of a lost art. I think when people really appreciate where they're at and appreciate that the fans are the reason that that a lot of the reasons why they're there where they you know and they they say that I, I just think that's so great so chris isaac chris isaac used to do that we would go that was one of mindy's favorite uh singers and we went to a bunch of chris isaac concerts and he would he would stay to the end i mean he would literally stay there to the end and and there's something that I, a little point i want to touch on is you know it's it's about getting to know that character of that person right so I want to paint this picture. We're, we're at Sundance, and, you know, I'm there for the premiere of the movie, and um, there's this entertainment going on. There's this guy called the Professor of Rock and Kenny Loggins. Now, I don't want to hammer too much on Kenny, but, dude, i got to just tell you that it literally changed my life that night. And I think sometimes you're kind of emotionally ready to accept some things at times or whatever, but, sure. um, you know, we're sitting there, and you're sitting across from Kenny Loggins. He's got his guitar and man, you brought me into a moment that was like we're sitting in the backyard, you know, around a fire, and freaking Kenny Loggins is just sitting there kind of strumming the guitar. And I knew him from Top Gun uh, and Footloose, but I kind of only knew the soundtrack. And that was something that I'm like, the moment you started to interview him, it was like this whole new planet opened up. And uh, talking about Danny's song, talking about the Pooh song. Like, that still blows me away, right? And you brought, you knew all of that information, and it, it was like he would play those little clips of the song, and I don't even know, it was like a couple, two or three chords, but the whole crowd knew every word of every Kenny Loggins song. The fact that, that, that Michael Jackson was a backup singer, uh, Elvis Presley covered a song of his when he was, you know, he was in high school. I mean, are you kidding me? And it was like this, it was a, it was a religious experience for me, man. And, and I'm sure you get this all the time, but it was like, that was the music I grew up on. And man, you brought it out. Even, even producer Chad, we were talking about this tonight, but or, or earlier today, he was like, he remembers being on his Walkman, kind of dancing around to the whole Footloose thing with his buddy. Yeah. I mean, it was a part of your fiber of your life, but there was so much more to Kenny than I ever knew. Yeah, and, I, and that's kind of my goal, too, is to open it up for people to understand that. We kind of just talked about that a little bit, about understanding who they are as yeah. artists are as people. But Kenny... Um, there's so many underrated artists out there. And I know that's a word that's used a lot. That's overused now or under, I guess, underappreciated. But uh, I think I, I came from a time where critics had a lot of power. You know, Rolling Stone, if they designated that somebody wasn't cool, they had a lot more power than, than they do now. For yeah. And 
when I was growing up, I, I remember a moment that was a, a big moment for me was Rolling Stone came out with this. And I bought Rolling Stone all the time and Billboard, whatever I could get my hands on, right? Yeah. And in a small town, I go to the library. And there was no Amazon, so, you know, you, <laughs> it was limited. But that's why I listen to Casey Kasem every week. But I think the difference between, like, Casey Kasem and, like, Rolling Stone or these critical magazines was that Casey loved everything. You know, he just... He gave equal time and he just counted out, he counted down the hits and he'd give the stories and he was so positive, you know, as a kid growing up in a town that, you know, it was, there wasn't a lot to do and everything like that. And I was kind of excited to get out of that town for a long time. Right. Kind of had yeah. Bruce Springsteen, like born to run, like it's a town <laughs> full of losers. I'm pulling out of here to win or, or Thunder right. Road, you know. But, um, but of course, I love my small town and, and realized years later that I, you know, was in, in such a rush that I, I missed how, how great it was. But my point is, is that Casey Kasem was so positive and, and I just thought, well, you know, Billy Joel and Toto and, and uh, Styx and, and uh, Journey and all these cool bands that Rolling Stone did not think those guys were cool. So I remember getting this Rolling Stone magazine that was the best of the 80s. It came out like in the last few weeks of 1989. And it counted down the top 100 albums, what they thought were the greatest albums of the 80s. And while a lot of them were, you know, I agreed with, of course, like, you know, Born in the USA and The Clash, London Calling and, and Michael Jackson Thriller. I didn't see any Billy Joel. I didn't see any Kenny Loggins. I didn't see any Toto, you know, and I thought why and i, I kind of said this and my dad heard me and he's like well because those guys aren't considered cool i mean it's great music i love it but you know rolling stone and the powers that be don't consider those guys to be cool and i didn't get it i didn't understand it because i'm like billy joe's way cool you know like how is he not cool and there's still a lot of haters out there and you know kenny loggins and so on and so forth but to me my ear was always and i think it was casey case and, and my dad that had this effect on me it was always about just the song. Who cares what's cool? You like what you like. And if the song is a great song, it's a great song. You know, Africa, Toto Africa, finally people are coming around to it. But I always thought Africa was a classic. I always thought oh. Rosanna was a classic, you know? My 19-year-old, my, my I get in his car, and this happened just a couple weeks ago. He's got Toto on. And I'm, it just puts a smile on your face, right? You're like, oh, yeah. But now he's... He's my he's my kid that is into music, man. This guy is just loves music, and it is so funny how they are attracted to the same thing that touched me, you know, in that soulful type of way. It was it was just magical, and I'm sure that you you had to have done you know research all over the place because I mean, I, I I watched some of your stuff that. It, all these different artists are like, man, you know more about me than I do. Or, oh, that's why they call you the professor of rock. Man, you only get that if your passion exceeds the, the limit, right? And it's <laughs> obvious that you've got that down there. And it was obvious that night, you know. Um, but it was, it was just all that different stuff that just completely changed. That night I knew, because we knew we were going to be doing a podcast and all that stuff. And, and I, I told everybody that was involved, I said, listen, We've got to be the professor of rock good. And everybody's like, okay. I'm like, that means we got to know everything about everything. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and then they started watching your stuff, and they're like, oh, my God, now I get it. And, and that's a gift, man. You just have a gift. I never thought that we would live in a world where people, on the, I mean, it's just 
part of the internet, right? Social media and YouTube where people will say horrible things to people that they would never say to somebody's face. And, uh, you know, and I'm a, I guess you'd say I'm a sensitive guy or whatever, but uh, we try not to, I have to read the comments sometimes because I want to, you know, interact with our community. And people will say, you have a self-professed professor rock. And I just want to say, the, it, it is a nickname that came that was not my doing. In one of my interviews, I think it was my second interview with the Beach Boys, they made the comment when my gen, the general manager from ABC was in the room, and he, they just said, man, you know more about us, you know, than, like, how do you know all this stuff? Like, you're like a professor of rock and roll, <laughs> if there was such a thing, like professor of rock and pop, and, and all of a sudden, like, interviews over, I, I'm leaving, and my, my, you know, the general manager says, Adam, that's what we're going to call you. We're going to call you the professor of rock. No, that professor of rock is, like, it couldn't be any more classic and perfect. As a matter of fact, I'm drawing a little bit of blank right now on who it was, but on one of the interviews you did, this guy, and obviously it's an incredibly famous guy. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering why I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, he, he reaches over to the end of the interview, and he looks at you, and he goes, oh, my God, they told me this was going to be the best interview ever, and it is. And then you, there's all these clips. So professor of rock. It's perfect, man. Absolutely perfect. Let's and I and I still want to I want to do a couple more things about uh, Kenny Loggins because I thought it was really just absolutely fascinating. But how you knew all of that stuff and and one of the things that is really incredible to me, and I think we you know we owe it uh, to mention it because a where you have been and how you have influenced you know tons of people in the world of music. Kenny was that guy that sent the elevator down. And I remember you saying that. And I think that also just, it hit my heart so much. I fell more in love with Kenny. I mean, I'm like, oh, my God. And, and you know, without those people, because I've got them in my life too, man, none of this stuff happens. And, and I do think it's a blessing like we talked about. I, I think that was just God's divine gift. But obviously from a small kid to where you're at now, this was your destiny. It's what you were designed to do. But you know what? Without those Kennys, man, you know? No, there's no question. You know, Jack Lemmon is the first one I remember saying that. He said that to several actors that he worked with who said, listen, it's your responsibility now to send the elevator back down. I'm trying to do that. Now that I've done it for you, it's your responsibility. I can't remember exactly, but that was really the idea. And to yeah. me, um, just ending that last point into this point, Professor of Rock is not really even a moniker or name. It's an idea. It's an idea of professing, you know, putting together the great stories of the songs that have been the soundtrack to our lives. And, you know, there have been so many people in my life before this, you know, who sent the elevator back down and helped me to be where I'm at. You know, I would say right off the bat, Richard Dutre Jones, who's the general manager at ABC for Here's a guy that took all the risk in the world. I mean, he, to, to say, oh, help me produce a show. You know what? In fact, you should be the host. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, that was putting a lot on the line. I know there were people in the, stu in the, in the station who thought he was crazy. They're like, why? what's this guy doing here? You know, he, he has no business. Uh -huh. There were people who told him, like, you know, we need a, a Barbie doll. We need a, a, <laughs> you know, right. a, you know, we need somebody beautiful like this guy in, in a, in a 
hat, you know, and, uh, you know, these glasses, like he's a nerd, you know, or whatever. And he didn't listen to that. He focused on that. That was amazing. You know, Kenny Loggins. I mean, obviously this is a guy who didn't even have to do the interview with, with a nobody, with somebody who, you know, never heard of. Um, I, I think of my dad who, you know, he sent the elevator back down in a few different ways. You know, sometimes it yeah. was, you know, we didn't get along and, you know, it was kind of that thing, but it was also teaching me about these songs and taking the time to tell me the stories and, and this beautiful town I grew up in. So there's a lot of those. My wife, I mean, my wife is, she's incredible. You know, from the very day one, you know, it's my second marriage, my first marriage, you know, I had somebody who wasn't a supportive who just, yeah. you know, didn't believe in it. But my wife has always believed in me. She's always said, honey, you can do anything, you know, and she, you, you know, I, it, it, it that and that is so dead important, man. When you're when you've got that support cast and and uh, and and I mean I you know I know you know what it's like to be on this side, right? You're the interviewer, right? And it's so much easier than being the interviewee, especially when you're talking about you, right? Yeah. But uh, there was no better choice. There couldn't have been a better choice. Once we have success, I think it's so important that we take the time. Uh, like I was talking about the artists that give time to their fans, you know, Yes. I think that sending the elevator back down is that when you see somebody that has, you know, a talent or something and, and, and you help them um, and you continue to pay it forward, that's one of the greatest things in the world. And greatest gift ever person that wants that shot, right? Wants that one chance to prove who we are. And we've all been in a situation where we just don't get that chance. And so I think, I've learned that in my career that these three or four people who have been so central in, in doing that supportive, a support system, you know, Carlos Santana said that one time and that really resonated with me. He said, you know, we're all, all musicians need a support system and don't worry about it. It'll come, but you know, you got to have faith in yourself, but you got to have a support system the people that drive you and help you. And I thought that's exactly right. You need people to encourage you. But you also need people, and I think that's the danger of the, the world we live in now, where when you have somebody that fights against you, you know, it, it teaches you to stand up for it what pushes you in. It does. And you're going to say, because for me, for some kids, though, you know, it's like, yeah, they're right. I am a piece of crap or I am, right. I am unworthy. For me, it was like, you know what? To heck with you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you, and I'm going to work extra hard. And so when I see comment out there uh, you know somebody criticized me or whatever that just drives me that's just like you know what i'm gonna prove you wrong because you don't know my heart you don't know who i am i'm doing this because like those musicians it's the reason that blood flows through my veins i'll give everything that i have so that this younger generation and every generation after that knows who kenny loggins is knows why these songs are so great and why they've changed people's lives and you know, Kenny Loggins, whether it's Kenny Loggins or Led Zeppelin, whether it's Toto or The Clash, to me, I love both of them for different reasons. And so right. it's always been the mission and will always be. So I think those are really important lessons. Well, and you also, you know, you also made a statement that, you know, we're losing these guys. These are just iconic legends in music, and we are losing them. And uh, to keep that alive, I mean, it, that, that music is just, it's just endless, man. And uh, so e that's what's fun. I, even when I was telling Eric, 
that I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm awful giddy because I'm doing the professor tonight, man. I said, oh, my God, the dude changed my life in, in Sundance. And he was like, oh, I can't wait to listen to that one because he resonates so much with music. But we all do. We know, we know where we were at in the car when a certain song came out. Oh, totally. Oh, just. Remember when Kenny said one of the most important parts of that Sundance thing for me, and I'll send it to you because we have it edited. But he talked about the real thing. It's a song about his, when he was talking to his kids about he, he and his wife were getting a divorce and how he yeah. had to kind of break it to his kids. And there was this moment, I wasn't expecting it, it came out of nowhere, where he started playing um, a Lyle Lovett song. You know, If I Had a Boat, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and he, he just came out of nowhere. It wasn't planned, and I know that it was just something that, he was inspired, and it was a moment where he was he was choking up. Uh, completely. And it was so cool. I was choking up. I was like, this is incredible because I've been there. I, I know what he's talking about. There's so many people out in the crowd that know exactly what he's talking about when he said, I did it for you and the boys because love should teach you joy and yes. not the imitation that your mommy and daddy tried to show you. Like, what a line. You know, if anybody... Oh you know, wants a song. I mean, just incredible. And he was sharing that story, very vulnerable. Sharing his heart. He was, he was just putting his heart out on his, out on his sleeve. And he, and he goes off onto this, if I had a boat, you know, <laughs> rode out on the ocean. And, and then he goes into his song and showed how that song inspired that part of the song. And he couldn't get through it. Cause he just, uh, that was awesome. That was dude. one of those moments where, I was like, let me just step down in the audience and just watch, because this is this is a life lesson for me, and it was just really incredible. Those moments are like, you know, hitch in the feels, hair standing on on straight on end, and there are moments in the interview, in a lot of these interviews, where I'll just be blown away, and I'll just be like, oh yes, I can't <laughs> believe we just got that moment. That is so cool, and and I'm sure that happens in a lot of them. I mean. I mean, again, I you know, I was I was preparing for you, which is I, I already knew this was just going to go in all kinds of directions because I was just like, oh man, I, I want every bit of knowledge that's in your head. I want every one of those stories, right? Which and you've done what close to five hundred interviews of every legend uh, uh, imaginable, which kind of gets me down to a, a couple things too. So one of the one of the interviews you did was you know men at work, right? Yeah, and. Uh, I mean, is there anybody that doesn't know the song Land Down Under? I mean, is there anyone who doesn't know that? I don't think so. I mean, Colin Hay, you know, lead singer, which is really interesting because he's actually Scottish. Yeah. Scottish guy who wrote a song <laughs> that has really become Australia's, um, you know, second song. national anthem, you know. <laughs> That's very interesting, but yeah. So what, what, I mean, when these guys, uh, do you know the backstory to these stories or when you're interviewing, is that when you get where those songs came from? I do. I know everything that has been really said about it. I mean, for the most part, I think if you go from about probably about 65 to 95, Three ninety four. I probably well even the fifties too. But the problem is we don't do a lot with the fifties because there's just not many people yeah. that appreciate or recognize. And and I have a, a different kind of love for every decade. Like the fifties have a really special place in my heart. To me, that was like the birth of rock and roll, the innocence, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, 
you know, Brenda Lee, all these incredible artists that um, I just think we need to give so much more love to. Uh, the 60s, to me, if I had to say what I think is critically the greatest decade ever of music, I would say it would be the 60s. The 70s, I think, was the greatest for albums. I think that was the greatest time for albums and experimentation through that, through a longer, you know, LP. The 80s are my favorite, my personal favorite decade. And then the 90s, um, I, I have an appreciation for because, you know, going to high school and I think when Nirvana came out and really changed everything, that was a really cool moment. I think that was really the last time that rock and roll saw something that really, you know, just became a tsunami and wiped everything away. So that's how I feel kind of about each decade. But um, I know the story probably about 60, 65 to 92, I would say. I pretty much know the story of most of these. And There's no doubt. And so, it, but I, I want to get a different take from them. I want to get more out of it. And it's, it's hard with the YouTube channel we have right now because Down Under we released today and it's doing pretty well, but it's about a nine minute piece and probably about seven minutes of that is interview. Um, that was one of my first interviews. Um, it's probably about my 80th, 70th interview, but it was back in 2015. I've gotten better and better like anybody does every interview you do right putting in your 10,000 hours right is right. been said many times so um when people will see like an interview like i did an interview last week a zoom session with the guy uh mike linda from uh level 42 is an 80s kind of an 80s funk jazz group that had a big hit with called something about you and that's like a you know it's like a 28 minute piece breaking down the song yeah down under is only seven minutes so I'll, I'll get with Colin Hay again and we'll have 25 minutes because, you know, so it's interesting. I release these things on YouTube and I think people look at it because of the way it's coming out and they're like, oh man, he, he must've just done this interview. Like, or um, how are you getting all these interviews during COVID? I don't see you guys wearing masks. Well, You're right. <laughs> all these no, things have been done before that. So I, I hate it, man, because uh, I would love nothing more than you to be sitting here in studio with me because there's something special about the energy that takes place in that same room. Uh, that was the Kenny Loggins thing for me. Like I can, I can totally relate when when he melted down like that. Man, that was powerful for me, man. Because you could tell all that stuff and that hurt and that pain. It went right into that segment exactly like you're talking about. That that was an amazing moment for me. That's, might even been why that one's just kind of like crushed my whole emotions. Like. This dude laid it all out that night, and that was so incredible. Well, we're all got... human beings, right? And we all have this uh, this connection. When we're all together, it's like Jason Mraz said this once, and I totally agree with him. He says, you know, when, when you're at a concert and everybody's together and you have these bodies and oh. you're singing together and you're dancing and you're feeling that energy, you're awake and you're, you're in the moment and, you, you know, be here now, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And he's exactly right. That's how you feel. And you're as human beings, and that's what I think music is missing right now. If you email parts out to each other, you're missing something there. Yeah. But you're in a room and you're feeling that. And then this guy says, hey, what about this? What about that? And that energy comes together and it's just a fire that you can't, you can't, uh -oh. you know, quench. You can't put it out. And it's amazing. So I agree with you. So, but yeah, like down under, um, go back to your question to answer it. Yeah, I mean, I know the I, I knew the story behind that, but now I'm getting to the point where I want to find out. I want to go beyond the story that's out there. I want every little intricate detail. Mm -hmm. 
because I know that the fans out there, I always looked at it like this, you know, if, if somebody's van broke down or their tour van broke down, they're out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have cell service and they knock on your door and it's Alice Cooper, let's say, <laughs> you know, and you have him at your house for two hours because he's waiting for somebody to come get the, you know, whatever. What are you going to ask Alice Cooper in that moment? Well, I don't want to ask Alice Cooper about his mistakes. I don't want to ask Alice Cooper about, you know, what he had for breakfast. I want to ask Alice Cooper, man, let's talk about this song. Let's talk about this album. You know, how did this come about? You know, how, you know, if you had Slash in the room, <laughs> right. you'd want to know every detail about Sweet Child of Mine. I would. I want to be like, tell me about that guitar solo. How did you come up with, with that? I've heard that was, uh, you were kind of influenced by Baker Street, you know, the, the 70s song. Um, tell me about that. What influenced that? I want to place the viewer at the scene of the crime. I want them to be in that studio and feel that. So greatest thing yeah. in the world is when they have a guitar or they have a keyboard there. And yes. you saw that with Kenny Loggins where yes. sometimes you can feel it. Like you, like there are a few times with artists where they transport me to that moment in 1985. I remember yes. I was doing an interview with a guy from Cutting Crew who wrote um, I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight and a few other songs. And he, I don't know what it was, but it was kind of a late interview. It was after the concert. But he got to this place where, and the crew felt it too, because I asked him after it was over. We felt like we were in the room. We felt like we were transported to 1985, you know, when he was recording that song, 84, when he was writing it. And there's no better thing in the world. And that's what I want to be able to get that to the audience so that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, they're in that moment and, and we never lose sight. Because... I can't remember who it is that says it, but you don't ever really die, but you do die when the people around you, those memories are gone. Yes. If there's one pe person that remembers you, you're not dead. Yes. To me, that's why this music is so important. We don't want anybody ever for that memory to leave. You know, we always want it to be alive. You know, my dad passed away last year, but he's alive because we share memories about him all the time. Yeah. They said you die twice, the first time you actually die, and the second time when they mention your name for the last time. So that's exactly... That's it. That's it. It's beautiful, man. And, you know, uh, when you talk about transcending, like that, uh, that evening that, that we had that, you know, we're there for the, the movie premiere, and I literally was upset when you guys were done. I'm like, no, you know what? Let, forget the premiere. We'll, we'll do that another time, man. <laughs> Let's let these two just keep going because it was like, it was like, man, I, I wanted to bring him down and just like put chairs around the, you know, just around the room. We need to make what, I, what I'm trying to figure out. And I've actually got a meeting about it this week. So hopefully in the new COVID world is how to create, I would love to create that to be a monthly thing where an intimate setting and I think people would pay for it. I mean, you know, thing, we live in a world now where everybody kind of expects things for free. Yeah. But experiences are really, really important. You know, I feel the same way as you do. I, that audience lit me up. It, it felt like being in an interview on steroids. Yeah. That was like, and I've done it about uh, four or five times since then, where I've done a live event where there was a crowd. And every time I've felt that energy, 
And, and I want people to have that experience because they'll come up after and they'll say, that was a gift. And they say similar things to what you said, because when you get to have a moment like where you're around the campfire with, with an artist and they share something, that's a really unique and rare feeling. And it's just something that can be life-changing. So, you know, we did it again with Kenny. We did uh, uh, in St. George. St. George, yes. I was going to come to that and something ended up happening. The red rock behind us. Yeah. Incredible. And he, he had his uh, backup guitar or his guitarist with him, his backup singer, great guy. And he was, they were harmonizing and uh. it was incredible. And we have that whole thing filmed. We filmed both, you know, Sundance and this event. So the fans be able to see that. And that's another thing a lot of fans don't understand watching our YouTube channels. I'll be like, oh, I wish that this interview was longer. Well, it is longer. Usually I do an hour to three hours with these guys, but yeah you know, you're talking about 20 or 30 songs. And so you, you do five minutes here, 10 minutes on this song and that kind of thing. So, I mean, we got 900 hours of content or more. And so, you know, there's, this will be going for a long time, but we need to find a way to package that in a way so more people can experience these events, these live events, because there's something special that happens in that room um, with that, that energy that's there, and, and it just needs to happen more often. Maybe for me, as I'm getting more sentimental and 50 years old, I, you know, I, oh, my God, it just takes me back to this incredible, incredible place. I, I think people would certainly do that. And, it's and like I know Field I of Dreams, right? Field of Dreams, Coming man. at the end of Field of Dreams where, you know, James Earl Jones says, they will come. You know, They will come. If you build it, they will come. And it's so true, man. And that's kind of what we've done with Professor of Rock. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, we've had some really supportive um, private investors who've just been incredible and done a great job, but they've really believed in this thing. And I think that people sometimes say that for granted. They'll say, well, what's the problem? You know, what you're doing is free. No, it's not free. It costs yeah, money to it film and to do all these things and edit and put it all together. But, you know, um, that's kind of the approach we've taken is like, this is so important. We have to get these guys before they leave this earth. Hopefully they live till they're 120, but we need to continue this. And so we, we pull out all the stops. We try to get as many interviews as we can. And one of the one of the uh, things that you did talk about, and this is something that really kind of uh, set with my wife. One of her songs uh, that that is absolutely her favorite song of all time. It's George Michael's uh, "Can't Make Me." Uh, can't make you love me, and it, I think it was the Bonnie Raitt cover that he did. Can't make you love me, yeah. Yeah, can't make you love me. And it was the Bonnie Raitt one. I know for yeah. for whatever that that one like touched her soul. And you didn't get to do him though, right? Didn't he pass right before? Yeah, we had reached out to his manager, and we were talking about setting up a date to do something, and he passed away. And I got to tell you that uh. that was one of the biggest heartbreaks in my life. Love George Michael. He's in my one of my favorite artists ever. And he's just, he's written so many incredible songs. And I just think that he's just, you know, he's, he was a very rare pop star where the guys all wanted to be him. The girls all wanted to be with him. Um, I just can't say enough about George Michael. Faith was, is in my top 10 of all time. I think one of the greatest pop records, I think between Michael Jackson, Thriller, that, and maybe Janet Jackson, Control, um, tied for the greatest pop album of all time um there's probably a few others i'm leaving out but yeah love george michael oh man what you know and so i i, I gotta do this too because you know again how music takes you back and and i have this uh uh high school friend of mine her name's penny hamilton and she watches our podcast and she'll comments and stuff 
And uh, so I, I'm going to do this for her, her favorite group, Duran Duran. Give me one thing about Duran Duran for my, for my friend Penny. Well, I actually did a video on Duran Duran about two months ago. Um, it's just me talking about celebrating Duran Duran and it's kind of a, like a 20 minute piece just talking about their, their great songs and, and why they're, they're just one of the greatest bands ever. And they posted it, they found it and, and they posted it on their social media, on their Facebook and on their Twitter. And that was an honor. They said, can I get a heck yeah. And that, that blew me away. Probably we've had hundreds of artists share our content, but that was probably like top five for me, maybe even top three, maybe number one. Yeah. Duran Duran was so, so iconic for me growing up. But I will tell you a quick story about that she might enjoy. I remember when I was uh, growing up, uh, my sister loved Duran Duran. She had the posters, the teen. Oh, yes. Teen, uh, t Tiger Beat. You know, they had obviously all the, uh, all, all the different members in there with their cool hair. And uh, I remember... Uh, I wanted to go get my hair cut like, uh, was it Nick Rhodes or can't remember who it was, um, but loved his hairstyle. And uh, so I, I went and snuck inside her room and I kind of, you know, really carefully unpinned the poster and took it with me to this barber. My, my mom took me to a barber, you know, and right. his name was Hatchet Jack for, uh, for good reason. He, right. Give you a buzz cut. That was it. Like, so I go in there and I'm like, Hey Jack, um, can you style my hair to look like this? And he's like, the hell are you styling your hair? What does that mean? You know, the hell do you want to look like a girl for, you know? And, uh, he just uh, looked at me like I had lobster, cr lobsters, crying. Like you know, she, she will appreciate that story. And, uh, you know, so is a, you know, eight year old, nine year old kid. I was <laughs> obsessed with Duran Duran and I think they have the best James Bond theme ever. I mean, yeah, do a kill so great. And, and, uh, I think ordinary world, you know, is Simon Lebon, he wrote that. Uh, he wrote a trilogy and that was a part of that trilogy that he wrote when a friend passed away. And if you go back and listen to ordinary world, that's just what, like one of the greatest songs of all time. It's just so um, haunting and melancholy and just incredible. The lyrics of that song. So she, she um, might not be aware that that's actually part of a trilogy of songs that he wrote. She's going to know now because I, I knew I was going to bring it up because I'm like, I know the professor and here, here it comes. <laughs> How about Survivor, Eye of the Tiger? I mean, does it get any more iconic than that song? Oh, my gosh. Eye of the Tiger. I'll, get, I'll give you a little something on that. So to talk to, you know, to Jim Peterick about that, who wrote it, that was one of the biggest honors of my life. I, I had him on my interview list for a long time. I want to get Frankie Sullivan, too, who wrote who helped write it was the guitarist. Yeah. And you know, one of my lost interviews that I wish I could do, who didn't sing Eye of the Tiger, but uh, Jim, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Jameson, who was the lead singer after, um, great singer. And, uh, but that was a flawless, just a flawless song. Uh, it's, it, it is absolutely flawless. All right, I got another one. Shout out to, to my buddy Joel and my office manager, Tia. They want to know about 
uh, Neil Diamond. Did you ever interview Neil Diamond? Not yet. Um, he would be uh, a top a top ten for me. I, I I sat down and I wrote out a list before I start when I was about two or three interviews into this back in 2013. And I wrote out, I think, a t- 20 names on a list of, like, who were my dream interviews. And I've gotten probably about half that list done. But Neil Diamond's on that list. And uh, it hasn't happened yet. But he he's one of my first memories as a kid hearing music. Uh, he, My dad loved Neil Diamond. And to me, he's written one of the most patriotic uh, anthems ever with, you know, America. And uh, every time I hear that song, I can't, I can't get through without shedding a tear. I think um, it's a great immigrant song, you know, but it's, it's just a great song about when he, when he sings My Country Tis of Thee in America. Yeah. I can't do it. I can't do it. Like, powerful. It's so powerful. And Neil is just one of the greatest songwriters ever. Uh, he's, he's got, there's something about his voice. There's a resonance and a tempo yeah. in his voice that nobody gets close to he's just uh he's a legend there there's just something about it right i mean there's some there's there's something special in there and it just it jewish elvis the uh, jewish elvis yeah crazy but but he actually wrote his own songs you know nothing against elvis because i mean elvis is a god to me you know he's right one of the greats but you know to me neil diamond i just i can't say enough about the guy he's just incredible You've been so gracious with your time, but I cannot leave this until I have you settle an argument between myself and Mindy. Oh, okay. I'm ready. UB40, Red Red Wine, is one of the greatest songs in history. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's... uh... (laughs) You better say yes. Well, so... um... I get in a lot of trouble for this, not in trouble, but people give me crap about this all the times. They'll say, you know, if if you were to ask me, is Survivor Eye of the Tiger the greatest song of all time? I say, yeah, it's one of the greatest of all time. And I say that in in all of my, you know, in all my things and people will, in all my videos and people will say, you know, man, you like some horrible music or whatever. Or, you know, everything's the greatest. But my wife teases me about that all the time. She's like, Adam's top 10 it's about 900 songs long, you know, and it's true. And I think we're all that way because it, yeah. it just depends on when we hear the song. But I mean, come on, Red Red Wine is incredible. I love that song. I think it's it's wonderful. And I mean, Neil, Neil Diamond wrote the song. Producer Chad is going to literally post a bunch of this stuff where people can go and find your information. I mean, I I'm we are going to promote this so hard because a music is just so life altering. Uh, there is, in my opinion, there is no one who does it better than you do on the interviews. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time because, man, we were standing on those stairs at Sundance Film Festival. I came up to you and I said, we're meeting again, my friend. I'm not letting this go. And I was even considering doing a story for success in my books on you, uh, which still may end up taking place. But I knew we would meet again. You you were phenomenal in what you do. You're magnificent in that. And I know it, you know it's sometimes it's hard to hear, you know, somebody and it, but man, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. It's just you touched me with that interview as well as Kenny did. I mean, man, I, I became such a huge Kenny Loggins fan after that again and and uh he's I, I he's a star. He's just a wonderful human being. He's the star for sure. I mean 
I, I, I appreciate all the compliments and I'm getting to the point where I'm a little more comfortable with it. But, you know, the way I look at it, I just, I feel like I'm just a regular guy who's really fortunate to live a dream that I never knew that I wanted that, that is the greatest job anybody could ever have. I'm very fortunate, but I'm just a regular guy that's just really passionate about music. Yeah. I think that when you're passionate, you just, you just leave it all out there. So I You are passionate, and it's beautiful. I want you to tell your wife hi from me and Mindy. Of course, it was so much fun spending time with you guys in Sundance. Tell the kids hi, and uh, thanks a million for doing this for us. Absolutely. Anytime, man. All right, brother. Thank you so much, and you go have a good night and get ready for that move. Okay. All right, buddy. Thanks so much, Adam. All righty.